Section 4 of Open the Door. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nan Dodge. Open the Door by Catherine Carswell. Book 1, Chapter 3. For in town, Joanna led almost wholly a dream life. The indoor existence, the hard streets which she hated, though they made a good playground, the petty boredom of school, and the growing disharmony at home all drove her in upon herself. In two respects only was the child's being vivid, in the activity of her body and in her dreams. At twelve she was a reckless rider, a menace to foot-passengers, of a maimed tricycle horse which had once been dappled and fiery of nostril. And when nursery shows were got up with Sholto as Handy Andy and Linnet as the performer of transparent conjuring tricks, Joanna, dressed in tights, suspiciously recalling woven underwear, always performed upon the trapeze. But what satisfied her most deeply was climbing. Climbing involved a mental and physical equilibrium, which was a delight. She welcomed the cool excitement that possessed her in dangerous places, up high trees and on the windy edges of roofs. She learned to walk steadily, balancing with her arms along the top of a narrow paling, and knew how to trust only half her weight to a weak foothold, passing in a swift predetermined rhythm to one more secure. At such moments she was the queen of her own body, and not of her body alone but of a whole system of laws she could not begin to formulate. Joanna, however, was afraid of jumping. She always felt terrified of a jump beforehand, and afterwards, practice as she might, it jarred her painfully. Often, when her companions had leapt unhesitatingly one after another from the rather high back garden wall at Kalesi Street into the stony lane beyond, she had to stay behind for long minutes. To have sat on the wall and scrambled down with a twist would have been easy enough, but this the child would not do. And she always jumped in the end, though no one looked on, and she was sick with fear. Once, indeed, of her own accord, she set herself a jump that was mere foolhardiness. There was a legend in the nursery that Cousin Gerald had jumped from the parlor window across the area at the back of the house, a considerable feat even for a young man, and the time came when Joanna got it into her head that she must do it too. It was weeks before she could bring herself to the point, and often she would stand by the window looking at the forbidding stone drop, some six feet wide and twelve deep, which separated the house from the sloping green below. Then one day, in the middle of the Latin lesson at school, a lesson through which Joanna habitually dreamed, it came to her that she would do it that evening. When she got home, she went straight to the parlor. It was empty, and she opened the window, and, quaking, climbed out upon the sill. Suppose she managed the jump, but did not land high enough on the slope. That would mean overbalancing into the awful area, and suppose she slipped on, leaving the sill. Her palms, wet with fear, clove to the pane behind her. She had a prickling agony all over the front of her body. She was lost if she jumped, yet she knew she would have no peace till she did. 
She shut her eyes, opened them again, leaned back for impetus. If I am killed, it can't be helped, was the thought that flashed through her mind like a solution. Why had she not thought of that before? And springing with all her strength, she landed on her hands and knees, well up on the grass. It had been easy as easy, she told herself when she picked herself up, but she was shaking all over as she went up the dark kitchen stair, and she never attempted it again. As a dreamer, the child was of that sort whose imaginings are never without some touch of the practical, and the material and the ideal often went curiously linked. One night, not long after her thirteenth birthday, just as she was dropping off to sleep, an idea flashed in her mind, and it so worked upon her that she lay awake for hours. Perhaps it had been suggested to her by the description of the tabernacle, which her mother had been reading at evening prayers. Anyhow, her notion was herself to build a temple using as her materials candles and a wooden box. She thought of the vistas of pillars this temple would have, beautiful white pillars more beautiful than the alabaster ones in the city chambers, rising out of a floor of wax which was to be scored and scored across while still soft to make it like a marble pavement. Tossing from side to side on her bed, she wondered whether the pillar should be left plain or fluted by an excoriating fingernail. As the possibilities of her design grew upon her, she became more and more wakeful with a touch of fever. She would have, she determined, a tiny Ark of the Covenant made from a wax-coated matchbox, and at either end, guarding it, she would put the two little stucco angels Aunt Purdy had brought her from Italy. She would gild them, and a vision floated before her of kneeling cherubim, gleaming between aisles of flawless marble, all the work of her own hands. Next morning was a Saturday, and Joanna, hardly able to bear her excitement, ran with her weekly sixpence down the hill to the grocer. Though he gave her the cheapest candles to be had, there were only twelve in the packet, and they looked disappointingly unlike marble. On the other hand, they were longer than she had expected, and forgetting for the moment the considerable size of Aunt Purdy's angels, Joanna thought she might reduce the scale of the temple by making two pillars out of each candle. When she got back to the house, breathless, her mother opened the door to her and could not help noticing her bright countenance. Questioned, the child poured forth an incoherent tale about matchboxes, marble pillars, and angels. Julie did not attempt to follow it. She only comprehended an unusual excitement, and she noticed with a pang that at such moments her daughter bore a strong likeness to poor Aunt Purdy. "'Would that I could see my dear child as much concerned about spiritual things,' she lamented, with a grieved shake of her head. When Joanna set to work upstairs with more doggedness now than enthusiasm, the result was a conflagration which left a large hole in the nursery carpet. Then and there the remaining candles were confiscated for household use. But Julie, always scrupulous in money matters, gave the temple builder as many pence as they had cost. Even during Sholto's lifetime there had hung over Julie's dressing-table a rival text to the one in the lobby. No richly illuminated scroll, this, but a simple square of glossy maroon-colored cardboard, silver-edged, and showing up in silver letters the words, 
to the Jew first. The importance of the Jews had been a subject on which Julie and her husband had differed, sometimes painfully. Julie, try as she might, and she never gave up trying, had not been able to convince Sholto that God's promises in the prophets had been particularly to his chosen people. The curses, Sholto would admit, must apply to Israel, but everything else he appropriated to himself and those like-minded with him. Nor would he admit his illogicality in the matter. It was without his approval, therefore, that his wife had gone regularly to a seedy and unpopular Jewish mission on the south side of the river. Julie's belief was that the scattered nation had been ordained to preach the gospel in all parts of the world, thus hastening the return of Christ. She could not help regarding the most unattractive Hebrew as a second, or at least as a third cousin of her Saviour and the lustrous-eyed men in greasy clothes who had cringed before Sholto expanded, sometimes alarmingly, in the sunshine of his widow's frank sympathy. More and more often they were to be seen at her table. As for Sholto's attitude with regard to the second advent, Julie had found it still more puzzling. As an evangelical, he had perforce held theoretically correct views on the subject. But Julie had only to mention what to her was the most joyous topic of the Gospels to realize that he considered the actual prospect highly inconvenient. In this, as in the Jewish question, Sholto had had the discreet backing of his minister, Dr. Rankin, and Julie had come away worsted more than once from visiting her pastor with a request that he would lend his pulpit to one of her Hebrew protégés. But Sholto had been dead over a year before the idea of leaving St. Jude's occurred seriously to her. It was a bold idea, for till then the Bannerman's church had been as much a part of themselves as their house. Indeed, it was more deeply connected than the house with their family tradition. Their grandfather had made it famous among Glasgow churches, and in the eyes of many among the congregation, their father, as a prominent elder, had been a more important figure there than Dr. Rankin the minister, who had begun his career merely as the great Dr. Bannerman's assistant. From the gallery, whither they were banished four times a year on communion Sundays, the children used to lean forward with awe in their hearts, and in their throats a choking sense of their father's dignity. Sholto always led the other elders in their solemn progress, through the napkin-decked body of the church to the choir-rails, and there, after the grave order of the Scottish service, they partook of the broken bread from Dr. Rankin's thin hands before they dispensed it, pew by pew, to the waiting congregation. The children, of course, had all been baptized at these same choir-rails. They were known individually to each member, and every detail of the building was as familiar to them as the interior of their nursery. How well Joanna knew the pattern of the colored diamond-shaped panes in the high rectangular windows. There were two yellow diamonds, then a blue, then two more yellow, and a red square at each corner. Then there was the dark, highly varnished pulpit with its canopy of mahogany spires. Often she had half hoped, half feared that the great bristling lid would fall by its own weight on Dr. Rankin extinguishing him in the middle of his sermon like a jack-in-the-box. Yet it remained poised, and certainly its intricacies provided a maze in which a child's imagination could run riot. 
It was one of Joanna's fantasies to picture herself and her cousin Gerald, conveniently reduced to scale, playing a madly amorous yet innocent game of hide-and-seek amid the wilds of this Gothic forest. But a period of changes had come in which Sholto was prime mover and the canopy had been done away with. At the same time, offertory bags were substituted for the plates at the door. A paid quartet was added to the choir. The congregation was requested, with very partial success, to join in the Lord's Prayer, and the whole church was upholstered in blue-gray rep, instead of in crimson as formerly. Sholto had always advocated what he called a bright service. The only way to keep a hold on our young people, he would say breezily in the face of conservatism. Certainly at the time of his death the decoration of St. Jude's vied with its service and sprightliness. With its white and pale blue paint, its gilding and its palm trees and niches, it resembled a casino rather than a church, and the paid vocalists never for one moment allowed it to be forgotten that they were paid. A stranger could have picked them out as they stood shoulder to shoulder in the van of the choir, a contralto as manful and almost as mustachioed as the bass, singing the praises of God right into the faces of those who were fortunate enough to occupy the front pews. The only thing not in keeping with this airy spirit of renovation was the minister himself. Dr. Rankin was bleak-faced with hard-bitten features and a smouldering misery in his deep-set eyes, and he so constantly sought his text in the Pauline epistles that the children came to fancy him a reincarnation of the apostle. Georgie, in particular, conceived a violent dislike towards St. Paul in the person of Dr. Rankin, and within six months of her father's death she began to wander from St. Jude's on Sunday evenings. As Julie herself paid tentative visits to other places of worship in her search for some richer milk of the word, she could not well forbid her daughter. But when Georgie began to attend openly the church of Mr. Narry's, a congregational pulpiteer and a strenuous moralist from England, who was reputed little better than a Unitarian, things were serious. Since Dr. Rankin had refused Julie's request that he would preach at least once a year on the millennium, she had not felt able to call upon him for his pastoral advice. She had longed to consult him about Georgie, but she could not forget the manner of his refusal, nor the way he had looked at her, making her feel herself peculiar, what was to be done? After much prayer, Julie summoned all her courage and once more visited her minister. She entered the dark study, feeling painfully shy and forsaken, and when Dr. Rankin rose in his unsmiling way to shake her by the hand and bid her be seated, she was smitten by a keen consciousness of widowhood. The truth was that shyness was his own affliction. Julie could have knelt before him, covering his hands with her tears, begging his counsel in her many difficulties, pouring out her heart to him, but his own forbidding reticence made of any such action a ludicrous impossibility. So she sat down in silence, praying within herself desperately that she might be given the strength to see her task through. She must try to put her case without exposing the needs of her soul in any way that he would shrink from as undignified. So, restraining herself, and in an agony of faltering, she told him that unless he could give her and her children greater spiritual nourishment, 
she had prayerfully decided to leave St. Jude's. His forbearance when she had said her say brought her nearer to breaking down than ever. No one knew better than she what it meant to Dr. Rankin to lose the Bannerman family in this way, yet he uttered no reproach. He merely said she must do as she felt best, advised her to send Georgie to a boarding school, and expressed a hope that at least his family and hers would remain on friendly terms. Bob, his fifteen-year-old son, was a constant visitor at Kalesi Street, and it would be a pity, the minister said, with a wintry gleam of humor crossing his face, that the children should cease to enjoy each other's society, because Mrs. Bannerman could not conscientiously enjoy his sermons. So yellow-haired Bob Rankin came about the house as much as before, and for a time he struck up quite a friendship with Joanna. But Julie became subject to fits of depression which no wrestlings of the spirit seemed to avert or allay. Indeed, the attacks grew denser in quality and longer in duration, till her old conviction of sin in marrying became almost abiding. Her children suffered seeing their mother's increasing difficulties in the routine of life, but as yet they did not guess at the depths of her dejection, nor at her heroism. Scrupulously she went on with her duties, but sometimes the god she worshipped appeared less like the father to her than like the stupendous tradesman of the universe who slowly renders his accounts. In her wanderings from church to church she sought her ideal pastor in vain. Ministers began to fight shy of her, and she became increasingly nervous of them, though her convictions never wavered. Her severance from St. June's told both on her and on the children. Church-going became spasmodic and a matter for individual decision. Sometimes, of a Sunday, the Bannermans would have extra-long family prayers at home, instead of going to any outside service, and as likely as not a Jew from the South Side Mission would officiate. But Julie never felt perfectly easy about such shifts. The household seemed disheveled. Besides, in any other place of worship than St. Jude, Sholto Bannerman's widow found herself a nobody. She began somehow to lose caste a little, and shrank from the greetings of her husband's old acquaintances. As time went on, she would once in a while steal in on a Sunday evening to the very back of Dr. Rankin's gallery, taking all precautions to avoid observation, and there she would listen to his arid discourse carefully and with tears, to know whether she might not return to his fold without violating her conscience. The children could always tell by her face at supper when she had been to St. Jude's. End of chapter 3